Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Welcome back to Blair and Barker, the show, the podcast. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you uh, get your favorite podcasts. And um, we will be podcasting every week during the lockout. We'll find stuff to talk about. It's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> we'll find. <laughs> we'll find. We'll find, we'll find, we'll this is my first, uh, dude, it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> I'll, not, I'll, find, I'll find stuff to talk not. about. I'll find, we'll find guys, we'll find guys, don't worry. Anyhow, every Thursday the pot will drop. It'll be Blair, it'll be Barker, and, uh, and we'll be on, we'll be around on air if anything breaks. So, there you go. Yeah. But I, 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 I will miss not being at the winter meeting. You my, will? My liver won't, but, uh. Yeah, I'll miss being at the uh, Aren't you a little old to be drinking like that? Yes. That doesn't stop you. No. Ned Coletti is the L.A. Dodgers TV analyst, and he's the former Dodgers general manager. He's one of our favorite guests. Ned, thank you so much for joining Barker and myself. Happy lockout. Um, I say that in jest. I know <laughs> I, I, I've, I've you know, done a lot of these, covered a lot of these, not as many as you, my friend. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, though, just – we're not in the room and we've seen the first, you know, we've seen the commissioner's first press release. We've seen his first news conference. We've read Tony Clark's first press release. We've been getting dribs and drabs out of this. Why, Ned, do I think that at the end of the day, something's going to get done early in February and maybe we'll miss a week of spring training, but that when opening day rolls around, it'll be business as usual. Am I... Do you feel that way? Am I being unusually optimistic here? No, I think you're right on. Uh, I don't. I didn't expect it to, to come down yesterday. I think there's, whenever you've got high stakes like this, even trade deadline stuff, think of the trade deadline. How many deals are made in the last hour, on the last day? That's because there's finally a reason that you've got to really show your cards and, and, and get something done. I think there's so much that has gone down in the last year and a half, and really before even the pandemic, that's, that's made this negotiation, I think, one of the more difficult ones going forward uh, of, of all of them. And I've probably been in, I don't know, eight or nine of them, I guess. But this one is going to be a challenge, but I don't think anything was going to get done yesterday. I think it's going to take a while to sort it out, and I think it's one of those things that there's so much that needs to be addressed 
that it, it's going to take some time. But I don't think either side, either side, wants to have a, uh, a protracted situation that costs them games that count. You know, I, I was speaking to somebody the other day, and I, I said, my God, this is a $10.6 billion industry. There's, there's money there. It's just a matter of figuring out how to spend it. And the guy said to me, Jeff, don't forget, the more money there is in the system, the more complicated it gets. Is, is that true? I think it is true. And I think that I think the toughest, and I've always been on, obviously, the, the management side of it. You know, I see both sides, and I, I, the more I've been away from uh, the management side, the more I, I see both sides. The um, I think when when you have ownership, that is, in, when you look at the different franchises and you look at how different they are from top to bottom and how they go about their business and how they collect revenue, that it is, it's precarious. you got to get to that point first. The Tampa's the Pittsburghs, you know, Toronto's kind of unique value a dollar for a lot of their revenue, things like that, um, versus the teams that have big-time, robust revenue, Dodgers, Yankees, a lot of other ones. So I think those are the conversations that that have to get settled before before Rob and Dan really know what what they're trying to shoot for. Until you know what your constituents will go for. And the players, you know, there's there's a committee of players, but there's you know there's not 900 players that are all chiming in, raising their hand. But there are probably 30 owners doing that. So the first step is really to get cohesive and to get a deal that, or deals, or different dynamics to the deal that your your group agrees on, and and that's a give and take too, because you have a lot of money in the game, as you mentioned. But there's more money in the game for some than there is for others. And so you've got to remedy that, along with everything else we've seen. Competitive balance, teams tanking, uh, different things like that. So this one, I think, is as complicated because of different factions to it uh, as anyone I can remember. Even going back to the to the 94 situation and, and really the advent of revenue sharing and, and uh things along those lines, luxury tax. But this one, I think, is is precarious for a lot of reasons, including the leftover pandemic and what, what that means and, and how that affects whatever there is. Well, while this is going on, as a GM, what would you like to see your players doing? Well, i like to see them working. i like to see them acting as if it wasn't going to be uh, any delay whatsoever. So when you do start up, that that guys are ready to go. However, every organization does that differently. You know, your 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 stadiums are usually uh, locked out of of having people come in and work out. Um, you can't you can't sit as you know. You can't sit all winter and then decide. Oh, geez, we have an agreement, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start throwing, yeah. or I'm gonna start getting ready. You know, it's it's a long process, and that that's why a lot of guys end careers is because the off season process to really get ready is an arduous task. So you just can't do that late. And I think you, you try to stay in touch with, with guys, if at all possible, to to, to see how they're doing. It, it gets The longer it goes, though, the, the touchier it gets to even have any type of, of communication with anybody. Yeah, well, and that's, I think that's why we saw the rush we just saw, too, for agency-wise. All, all that these organizations put on these players, which side of the ball do you think is going to have the toughest time 
to stay sharp? Would it be the pitching side? Would it be the offensive side? Um, that's a great question. I think the um, spring training is there, in my opinion, for the pitchers more than the hitters. Mm-hmm. I think hitters could probably go play after two or three weeks. Pitchers, you got to work your way up. 30 pitches, 45 pitches, 60, 65, 75, 80. One more start after that, then kind of a toned-down start. So the pitchers probably need the time. So I think that may be the the answer to that question, that they're, they're the ones that, that spring training. The duration of spring training, I think, is is there for your pitching staff. So, Ned, look, there were deals that didn't get done. Um, you know, we talked about the the whole the Justin Verlander thing wasn't formally announced. Nobody kind of knows where that stands. There's still some players out there, uh, some big free agents, Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, uh, among others. Um, do you think that there are players and agents who intentionally decided not to sign until they see the new CBA? Like I, I'm using Carlos Correa as an example. If I'm Carlos Correa, do do you think he went into this thing thinking or realizing that, hey, I may have to wait. If I want to get one of the big dogs to come in and give me a 10-year contract or something like that, I may have to wait until they see what the new CBA is like. Or do you think it's just a matter of, you know, if somebody came up to Carlos Correa and said, we're going to give you whatever, uh, seven years and an X amount of dollars right now, he would have taken it? I think if that deal existed, I think he would have taken it okay. like others did. I think those that, that signed... I haven't done a lot of look research into it. I think the teams that really sign players at big dollars, uh, with the exception of the Mets, I think all of them have um, probably no real fear of where the line will be drawn for luxury tax. I think you saw teams that are in that that arena and in that you know, in the closeness to it. Maybe they did last year. Uh, you know, you're not going to probably reset the entire bar. Uh, if you're over it last year, you're probably going to be over going in the next year type of thing as far as the rules will go. Uh, I think those teams did shorter deals, did one-year deals, did smaller deals. I think teams that had a lot of margin between where their payroll was and where the where the payroll tax, luxury tax may end up, uh, and they probably have a, a view of where it may go, uh, did business and really, really did big business. Texas, huge business. Mets probably the only one that are in a position where, hey, we, we got to get better. We got to get better right now. We've had a lot to get through, and a lot of people are looking at us and wondering, hey, these guys for real or not? Are they gonna Are they gonna get something done, or what are they gonna do? Which I think benefited Max, and I think will, you know, benefited some of the other players. But if you look at who signed those long deals, except for the Mets. None of them really are teams that are, are sitting on the cusp of where the luxury tax just was and knowing that it may go up and may go down, not probably a lot, but they're probably going to take a, 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 those teams close to that and take a breath and wait to see. This is a two-part question. I, I got to ask. The deals were too good to return down, too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I got I to gotta ask you about the Dodgers. Where do you think the Dodgers are headed and from afar, what do you think so far th- that you like about what the Blue Jays have done? Well, I think the Blue Jays have been have been really good and um, aggressive. They've taken which was you know when Alex left. I mean, it was it was kind of at uh, 
at a high point after years of just kind of been, you know hanging around, I guess. Uh, and then it kind of went the other way a little bit, and it, it kind of went back down again. Um, you know, I, I love when that when that ballpark is full. I'm sure the owners do too. But I love the excitement that Toronto brings uh, to their baseball passion, and I think that they fed off that, and I think that they're continuing to to try and do that and try and compete and trying to be one of the top teams in their league. And they also have the the benefit when you have really good young players. You can balance that off with some high-priced free agents. It's always a balancing act. Not every team is going to have players making twenty to thirty million dollars everywhere you look on the field. But if you've got some some key young players that are, are in that at not quite arbitration age or even arbitration age, which they do, now you've got you've got the balance to go do something else. Because when you add up, what does your three, four, five hitters cost? When you add that up, you can afford a 30 if you've got a couple of millions sitting in the other spots. So I think they've done a good job with it. I think if they've got an exciting season, they're waiting. Uh, one of the things that the Jays did do, Ned, is it, it, it's pretty obvious that they went into negotiations with Robbie Ray and that the approach was and because we're told that the, what Kevin Gossman signed for is what the offer was to Robbie Ray, that they went in and said, look, we've, we've got this much money and, and basically philosophically this many years to go to get to get our starting pitcher. If Robbie Ray doesn't sign, we're going to pivot right away. We're not going to wait. We're not going to get hamstrung. Do you think that is kind of what happened with Kevin Gossman? That that the Jays just decided better to get Kevin Gossman in now than in now than wait another twenty four to forty eight hours to see if Robbie Ray comes back, have him go to Seattle or someplace, and then be left with nothing. I think it happens all the time. I you know I'm not in that that room, so I can't talk to it specifically. But I know that you know I did that a lot of different times too. You know, you know, you know who you're dealing with. You know the agent. You know the agent style. You know the player. The player style. You know the player inside out if he's played for you. So you, know, you make your move, and you, you can never get caught short. You never go into a negotiation with only Plan A or even just Plan A or Plan B. You've got to have you've got to have a lot of depth to the plan, especially when you've got the rest of the investment that that club's got. With the rest of the team, you needed a you needed a top of rotation one two, two three guy that can that can pitch that knows how to pitch that's had success. You, you can't go into you can't get into the lockout area, and then whatever's going to come next, who's ever going to be left without that player. So if that's what they had to spend, you know they they probably gave somebody an ultimatum and says, look, if you're not going to do this, if this doesn't work for you. That's cool. Let us know because you know we we got to do something else right here, right now. That happens. That happens all the time, and I think that it's 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 the way you've got to play it. Because if if Gosman goes some other place, and Robbie Ray goes where he goes, you know you've suddenly got this really good team that that's missing somebody that's going to have to pitch. You can't you can't make that stuff up. You can't wish it to happen. You've got to figure out an option B that that you can live with and something that you know and. That's why all the work you do during a season, all your scouting, all your analytics, comes to fore at that time of year because you know who else is in that caliber in your mind to go do something with. You know, Ned, uh, you you talked a little bit about ownership, and I think I, I looked at it. I think there there are nine owners or nine ownership groups in the game that were around in 1994. Uh, 
there, there are a lot of owners, frankly, and this I think this is a good thing. There are a lot of owners that could, fans probably couldn't identify him. They probably walk into a room and fans wouldn't know wouldn't know who who it is. It, it's not like it was in the old day where everybody knew who the owner was, and sometimes you hated it, and nope. sometimes you really liked him. Does that make Rob's job harder? You know that that. It, it, there's there's less I was going to say less Jerry Reinsdorf than there used to be and that's a loaded statement but you know what I mean you've got guys now from corporate backgrounds it's probably a less homogenous group than you had in the past does that make Rob's job different trying to hold all these these folks together I think it does I think it's a, you know when people have familiarity you know when when you when you go back to what you're talking about you know Rob was the one who had to learn the group the group was already there so to speak and I've known Rob for since he first got into the game. You know, he, you know, he worked his way into knowing the personalities and the strengths and, and the concerns of each individual group because they were already established. And sure, a guy changed here or there, a person changed here or there. But by and large, it was that group. Now, it's, now he's gone from that status to really the veteran status, longtime negotiator, commissioner for a while, and, and he knows every, everybody's in that room, but he doesn't necessarily know everybody when it comes down to this situation. And sports is difficult, I think, for ownership, especially new ownership. I've had so many questions. I've had owners that were, were veterans. I, I had owners that were, were new uh, and, and learning as they went. And there's, there's a lot to grasp that they don't necessarily understand. When you're paying, um, you know, your 25th player, your 26th player, uh, a few million dollars. When you think of your hierarchy in your, in your other corporations, uh, you know, the last person added to your group probably isn't making $5 million, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of different things that ownership needs to understand and, and goes, goes through with experience. Ultra smart people, otherwise they wouldn't, wouldn't be sitting in that seat. But there is an education to it. And on the other side, you got a brand new negotiator in a way in Bruce Meyer, right? Who's he's there to to follow in the footsteps of of Michael Weiner and Don Fear and Marvin Miller. That's that's his job, and you know that he, he's going to be excellent at what he does. But he's also walking into situations that yeah, he's well versed, veteran of of a lot of different things. But this one will be, I predict, unique for him, although he had a pretty good trial run last year with the pandemic and negotiating a return-to-play situation. But this is, this is a big time for a lot of people in brand-new spots. Rob hasn't been a commissioner. Uh, he, was, he was a top negotiator though, through all the last CBAs, but not the commissioner. Commissioner Seeley was a commissioner. So you have different people in different roles, great experience, really good at what they do but dynamics that, that they are probably learning for the last 12 months, 20 months that they're going to have to put into play now. Plus, you have a CBA that I think has got a lot of different, different trap doors to it. You've got the service time manipulation issue. You've got free agency, except for the last eight, nine days, has stalled in its, in its growth in, in some people's minds. Uh, you know, you've, you've got a lot of different things that you haven't really had to deal with. You know, the, it's just it's just a different dynamic. A lot of things tie together. Typically, in a CBA, these have a lot of a lot of issues, in my opinion, that are are solo but affect everything else that goes on because everything does. But it, it's just it seems to be a more complex, deeper um, situation than in, in the past years. 
Ned, really good of you to join us. Always appreciate your insight. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. Hopefully this gets resolved and uh, we can get back to talking baseball. Thank Thanks, you, my Ned. friend. Be well. You got it. All right, guys. Always a pleasure. Love being out with you. Take Thank care. You. It's Ned Coletti, L.A. Dodgers TV analyst, former general manager of the L.A. Dodgers, longtime baseball executive, former hockey writer, Done currently hockey scout. Done it all. Done it all across uh, across sports. That that was really good insight on on sort of the dynamics of what we are going to see as this lockout plays out. Eleven thirty. Yep. Greg Boris joins us. He was with the Players Association when Donald Fear and Michael Weiner were running the show. And um, it, keep in mind, and, and Ned made a great point. Tony Clark is the first player to be the executive director of the Major League Baseball Players Association. But Bruce Meyer is the guy in the room doing the negotiating. Dan Halem mm-hmm. for the owners, and um, th- those are the those are if you want to call them the point men on, on negotiations for the two sides. But I, I I love the way Ned Ned said that it is you've got a lot of and and this tells you just how much labor peace there has been in baseball because there's been more labor peace in baseball than any other sport. Yep. The NHL has been a tire fire compared to Major League Baseball when it mm-hmm. comes to labor peace. You've got a lot of guys and a lot of folks who are in different positions. And, you know, Ned's right. Rob Manfred, when he joined in 1994, was the owner's outside legal counsel. Then, you know, he became their chief labor negotiator. Then he became commissioner. And the responsibilities with those those roles change. And the dynamics change when you take those jobs. So you've got... And this was my one real concern, you know, in addition to the social media stuff, is how much institutional knowledge is there? How many folks are going to be in that room who lived through 94, who were there in 2002 when the game came within an hour of of, of a strike? Tony Clark was there in, 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 in 2002. He was one of the player negotiators. And, and that, was, that was the closest baseball's come since 1994 to shutting down. So you've got all these people in different positions and you've got fully two thirds of the ownership group are new. They've never been through a lockout or, or, or a lockout or strike. Sure. The Polad family, the Montgomery's in Philadelphia, the Steinbrenners, Jerry Reinsdorf, they were around and they've been through it. Peter Angelos has been through it, but you've got two thirds of the owners. They have, they haven't gone through it before. And you got a bunch of players that haven't, that haven't gone on strike. I don't, there wasn't a major league player that was around in 1994. And I remember talking to Donald fear, but one of the, one of the things that he always found as a strength of the players association is you had, you had guys who had gone through periods of stress and you could rely on them. You had some veteran guys, you had guys, you had second generation players like Barry bonds and, and, and Ray Knight guys who had second or third generation in some cases, guys who sort of were of an era where their dads talked to them about the great labor fights of the past. And you, you, you don't necessarily have that now. And, and that is a little bit of a concern. It, it, you know, people can read about what happened in 1994 and how in 1995, there, I think revenue fell by something like 20%. And you go, oh, yeah, that's bad. That's awful. That's bad. But until it's actually affected you, it's just numbers, right? And until, until you have gone through that, it's, it's, it's something somebody else went through. 
So that would give me a that would give me a little cause for concern. And as I said, we'll be joined by Greg Boris, formerly of the Major League Baseball Players Association. He'll he'll give us more insight in that because we're trying to sort of if you're following this, we're we're trying to give you an idea of what this is going to look like. And I'm not trying to talk people off the ledge, but I it's I, I I'm just I'm trying to get a lot of people who haven't gone through this before to kind of understand what they're going to face and not overreact. Because as you heard you heard Ned said, there's a there's there's a ton of work here. There's a lot of complicated stuff is in it. This isn't about an extra seat in the bus in spring training or <laughs> no. about a, a chef in the clubhouse. No, nope. it's not. This is about how I'm going to give you your money. Yeah, that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's not about all that other that other stuff. And, and, and I know one of the issues with the last CBA is a lot of people thought that there was too much attention paid to quote unquote lifestyle issues and not enough attention paid to the nuts and bolts. And it's almost like now 10 years of stuff has got to be settled in three months. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard. Yeah. Just listening to you talk doesn't, doesn't give people that are just listening, just starting to tune in a lot of confidence. Like that, 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 three, three, ten, 10 years and three months is a lot. Like but there, that, but and when you're dealing with, 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 you know, that much money and that they're, they're one side's wanting the other side to just give out a bunch of money and doesn't seem like just me on the outside looking in wants to give up a lot to get it. Uh, I think, but, but I mean, they, they, they will, nobody's going to come out. Nobody's going to come out in the first round of negotiation and tip their hand. They're just not. They're, they're just not. I mean, if you're in a hurry they, to get again, it over with, you But wouldn't. they're not. But they're not. Who's in a hurry? Players aren't in a hurry to get I over guess. with. If you're a player, why why do you want to give now? The only the only question I would have is what, what gets the conversation started up again? It's already been. The, the, like a serious conversation, well, not, fact, not a seven-minute conversation where I hand you a piece, piece of paper well, with, fact that with I, one through five on it. And and you hand me your one through five, and we go our separate ways, and we mm, think about I, it. No, I think that, I think the fact that the players have indicated they're ready to expand the playoffs that's pretty significant. The players moved towards the owners last night, not far enough, but again, maybe we don't know. Maybe the owners are happy. With, maybe they'll take yeah, twelve maybe. teams. But the point is, if you're the owners, you're not going to say that. You say yes now. There's no there's no pressure to make a deal now. That's it, Ned was absolutely right. This game only operates. That's why we have a trade deadline. That's why nothing gets done. That's why we sit here at 4 Eastern on whatever day it is, July 31st or whatever, and we wait for all these trades to come in. Because, you know, yeah, it makes sense for the Jays to get Jose Barrios. It made sense all year, but it didn't happen until the trade deadline mm-hmm. kicked in. So that that's the whole thing. Nobody Nobody shows their hand right out of the gate. The idea of a CBA isn't to create labor peace. The idea of a CBA is to determine how money gets spent. And it's just a negotiation. Patience is not the easiest thing for most people. Tuning in, involved in it, any of that. It's just not. Yeah, well, we're not, we're, not, again, we're not a patient society. We've never been down this road. Nope. Well, You've got generations of baseball fans. They don't remember 94. Hell, you've got a generation of baseball fans that doesn't remember steroids. Doesn't remember the steroid scandal. I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that's the way it is because time goes on. Things change. Uh, if you're a baseball fan, if you're a 20-year-old baseball fan, you've basically had labor peace. Oh, yeah, there was that thing with the, you know, with the pandemic. That was nothing. All that, the, the ringing of hands about the pandemic was BS. They were going to get out in the field. It was only a matter of how many games are they yeah. going to play. That's that. That is that is nothing. Listen, I sat in a room in a congressional hearing room when congressmen had the commissioner of baseball and the head of the players' association 
sitting at the same table and basically saying, your game stinks, your game is filthy as hell, your game is killing young people because of steroids. That's an existential threat. Yep. That's an existential threat. This, $1.2 billion for a franchise. The A's are probably going to move to Vegas. This is, this is business. The most important thing that can happen here, and, and this, this is, is one reason that I'm glad Rob Manfred is in charge of things because he realizes this. The one thing you can't have happen is you can't personalize this. You can't get to the point where people like Garrett Cole and Max Scherzer and Marcus Semyon, who are on the Players Negotiating Committee, you can't get to a point where all of a sudden ownership sources, I'm looking at you, Steve Cohen, your damn iPhone, you can't get to a point where they start hammering guys personally because now you're damaging the product. If you start hammering the players, you are damaging the product. At the end of the day, once this is all done, it's going to be Max Scherzer and Garrett Cole and Marcus Semyon and Bobachette and Vladdy Jr. and Fernando Tatis. Those are the ones that are going to bring the fans back in the stands. Ain't going to be the commissioner. Isn't going to be the owners. Isn't going to be Tony Clark. Greg Boris is president of PowerX Communications. Formerly, he's director of communications for the Major League Baseball Players Association. He's been in the room. He's going to give us a little guide here to, to, to picking out what's BS, what isn't, what we should be worried about, what we shouldn't be worried about. It's Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. All right, welcome back to Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590. The fan again available on podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Please rate and review the show. What are you looking at me like that for? Mm-hmm. Hey, we're now fully. What are we? Don't say it. Less, less than we're twelve in hours we're into in the lockout. That's all that matters. As you talk, we'll be over this thing quick. Nobody even know we were in it. I didn't say. Yeah. No, I did not say that. I I, I did not say that. Before or after February 15th? I think before, but that's just me. I'm not in the room. Mm. Just my read of the situation. Greg Boris, he certainly knows way more about this than I do. He is president of Power X Communications, former director of communications for the Major League Baseball Players Association. Greg, thank you so much for joining Kevin and myself. You know, th- there's there's been a lot on Twitter about this, and God knows there's going to be more on Twitter about mm-hmm. it, unfortunately. But I thought the tweet you sent out yesterday, and and I retweeted it about, it, it, and I don't know if we, we had an interview with Ned Coletti, who basically said the same thing you you, you did in your tweet. He said, "Hey, it's not just." owners and players, there's a lot of competing interests here. And by the way, one of those competing interests is owners versus owners. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because that's something that I don't think a lot of us pay attention to. I think we have this idea that, you know, there's there's a group of owners and they all want the same thing. And that's not necessarily the case, is it? 
No, it's not. And it's this. I'm sure as Ned alluded to, these are very complex negotiations. And I know the fans don't want to hear about it, the billionaire-millionaire argument. And from that perspective, it's true. But for the parties involved, especially the players whose careers are much shorter than the ownership groups and the values of those franchises, these are very, very important and meaningful uh, negotiations, um, you know, drastic. Uh, and when they get to a point like this, so in the room, unless you're in the room, you don't really know what's happening. So there'll be a, a flood of information spread, a lot of spin. Uh, but to answer your question, owners versus owners, as, as everybody knows who follows the economics of the sport, you know, the players over the years after 94, 95 agreed to address the concerns of the owners and by instituting uh, and agreeing to certain systems of revenue sharing and the luxury cap. A luxury tax, competitive balance tax. And over the years, especially in the wake of COVID and the fact that baseball probably took a bigger financial hit than other sports uh, because they had to play 60 games without spectators. And most teams in baseball generate a vast amount of money through the live gate. Uh, maybe some of the bigger market teams, and they're the ones who probably lost the most because they had probably the highest payrolls. Uh, through this negotiation, maybe they were looking at the – or might be looking at trying to recoup some of those losses through reduction in revenue sharing. So in certain respects, some owners may be siding with the players in the terms of, you know, we have to eliminate or reduce drastically the amount of money we're sharing with some of these other clubs, uh, not from a competitive standpoint, but from the bigger markets perspective uh, to recoup some of what they may have lost over the, over the pandemic. In, in general, is, is it your read though, that this is, and, and look, you, as I said, you were a lot close to this. I, I don't, I just don't get, I, I'm not sensing the animosity that I used to sense. And, and I, I, I could be wrong here. Uh, you're right. The issues are heavy. I think the issues here maybe are more complex than any negotiation we've been through in a long time. But Greg, I don't get the, I, I just don't get the sort of the visceral hate that I got at times in the past. I think a lot, a lot of that's intentional. You know, I know in my tenure there, I went through four negotiations and first the first one in 2002 was you know we went seconds away from from a strike and shutting the game down in 2002 and we worked really hard from 1999 and on to learn from past mistakes to try to keep the focus off uh away from the bargaining away from negotiations away from the he said she said players focus was on the field if they were ever talked about it or asked about it from the media it was hey we just want to play negotiations will take care of themselves. We want our focus to be on the field. So through these years, I think you see less public airing of the grievances. So it does appear that there's not a lot of animosity, but I can tell you over the years, you get behind closed doors, you know, it's not all kumbaya uh, through any of those negotiations that were reached without a work stoppage. Um, you know, but, but the both parties have done a pretty good job of trying to keep it out of the public view. Uh, what, what we've heard is it may be come to an end here, February 15th. People that are closer to it than we are could be March 1st. The question I would have, because I've never been a part of anything like this, is what's it take to get both sides back into a room and get serious about ha having this come to an end? What does it take? Well, it takes a few things. First, given that this is an emotional moment here, right? We're not even 12 hours past the, the lockout, although everybody probably on both sides felt it was inevitable. Uh, there's still a lot of adrenaline, and a lot of emotion uh, running through the system. So they've got to let the dust settle, catch a breath, reconvene uh, on each side, you know, re kind of re recommit 
to the process and then get back at it. And they are, from what I see, and again, we don't know we're not in the room, they'll be very far apart on some of the issues. And the players may be looking at, you know, the, 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 the spirit of the agreement that they're working under was created in a system where the players are valued differently, right? It was experience over youth. And now data has shifted the focus to youth over experience. Uh, and the youth represents a very cheap labor pool to the players. And so that puts and forces a lot of the other players out of jobs because there's a whole bunch of players making $600,000 who based on data are more, are cheaper, easy to afford. So players want to change that. And so owners either have to recognize that they have to move a bit in the player's direction on that regard. And if they start to do that, things may happen, but if they don't, the players will dig their heels in because I think that that's what they might view. Uh, and, and what's going to take a deal, it won't take, it, it'll take pressure points. And that's not going to happen until spring training where some of the clubs, players don't get paid till April 15th. So they're not going to feel any economic hit until the season would supposedly begin. So I think February 15th would be a very optimistic uh, approach. Uh, I don't think you shut the game down thinking you'll just pull it back on February 15th and say, okay, never mind, let's play. I think both sides are very serious. Clearly a lot can happen between now and then, but if you asked me to give me truth serum and told me to make a prediction, I think games will be lost. You really, you think there will be some games lost here? Yeah. I think the players are serious about the economic shift they want here, right? They may be looking at a pivot uh, and maybe they'll have to settle for a bit of a swerve instead of a pivot. The owners have a system that they love, right? They love this system. They may try to figure out other ways to maybe entice the players. uh, But if the players have resolved in their, committed to what they think is a broken system and needs to be updated to reflect the game today, not the game 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. Games will be lost. The players have been prepared for this as the owners have been prepared for this. Yeah. I, I think they go into a lockout thinking they won't lose games. I think that's the optimistic public spin. Right. I think they know once you shut the game down, all bets are off. All bets are off. Uh, you have to prepare for the worst. Buck Martinez, who was involved with the Players Association in the early days, tells me a a story about sitting in on negotiations with Marvin Miller. Uh, Negotiations were done. This was one of the agreements they managed to get. And and, and Buck said when it was all done, a bunch of the players were walking back to the hotel with Marvin. And, you know, they were feeling pretty happy about the agreement. And one of the things Marvin said is, what made him the happiest was that the union had hung together because he said at the end of the day, my fear is that at some point owners are going to successfully split the union. Now you, I mean, your, your point is really well made it. The system that favored experience over youth now needs to be overhauled a little more in the other direction. Does that create a problem for Tony Clark and the union and for players to maintain that solidarity when essentially we're looking at a bit of a power shift here between older players and younger players. I don't, I don't think so. I think Tony's biggest challenge clearly is during this lockout, none of these players have gone through anything like this. So right now, again, it's an emotional high. They're athletes. They're competitive. They're into it. Once you get close to the spring training, the routines aren't going to happen. You know, Tony and his team and all the veteran players are going to have to put all the younger players at ease, but I guarantee you for at least a couple of years now, the players have heard the same drumbeat, you know, that, you know, this isn't about us, right? We're trying to change a system and make the game better and leave the game better for those who come after us because the Bobby Benitez, the Dave Winfields who work for the MLBPA will be telling them they did that. So the guys could enjoy what they have 
And now they have to make some sacrifice. And some of those sacrifices might be the loss of millions of dollars in lost wages. Mm. Uh, you know, it's funny. We not As soon as Rob Manfred sent out his, his news conference or his, his press release yesterday, the MLB website immediately got rid of, of you know, all, all player imaging. It's going to focus now on the history of the game. I mean, this, this golden era committee is never going to have as much PR uh, surrounding an announcement than, you know, that, that it's going to get in the next, in the next week or so. We've seen the players on social media take down their images in solidarity. We haven't had a stoppage in baseball in the social media age. Is that a concern for you? And do you think, do you think it's a concern for, for Tony and Rob in particular? Because, hey, all it takes is, all it takes is Steve Cohen to wake up one morning and say, I'm tired of this crap and fire out something on Twitter. And I mean, that can undo a couple of days of progress. Sure. Sure. And that has always existed. Right. And, and baseball was known, you know, Bud during previous negotiations, especially in 2002, you know, he implemented a gag order. He didn't want anybody talking about the labor uh, movement. And that probably still uh, prevails to this day. The union's position was always, we don't impose gag orders. I don't know what Tony has said to the players or if he's changed any of that, but it was always, the players are free to speak. Uh, they have a voice, they have a platform. The only caution that the union um, advises players on is before you speak, before you tweet, before you do anything, make sure you have the facts. Make sure you're informed. Make sure that your opinions are informed. But clearly, this will be a unique negotiation because of that outside force of social media. Uh, to see if it has an impact. You know, clearly, you know, the union's going to want to make sure that the players are putting up a wall between any reaction they see on social media, and if they do turn to social media, that they're using it, using it positive to support their efforts and not hurt their efforts. Greg, it may, may be a little more difficult to do than it sounds. Yeah, mm-hmm. Greg, you hear a lot of times that, that fans want to blame a side. Is there, is there, can you blame one side more than the other, or is there enough to go around for, for both sides? Uh, you can't blame any side, right? This is just this just comes with the territory, you know. In baseball, in particular, you know, the fans—not to use the word spoiled—but they've been treated to 25 years of labor peace uh, or more, right? So this is just business. This is just a part of what comes with the territory, and the deal from the players' perspective that they have the collective bargaining agreement. Again, it's not done in isolation. This agreement that's Now, 360 pages long started out as a 16-page document in 1968. You know, this is a tapestry. This isn't just something that's created in a vacuum every five years. There are threads that weave so many pieces and provisions to every facet of the game. Uh, And over the years, the players made concessions to address the the owner's needs about competition and sharing revenue and making everybody have hope and faith. And so in the process, the philosophy changed of the clubs. As I said, they've now more youth, but now the zero to three guys, they can only play for uh, the club only has to offer them the minimum salary, the $600,000. And so, you know, when they do the analysis, Hey, why sign a guy for 4 million when I can get the same war Mm -hmm. uh, for $600,000. And so that's the slip up in this process. And that's really, I think the crux of it, how do you balance that out again how do you make every class of player the zero to three the three to five the five and above equitable in terms of their value and contribution so one group isn't undercutting the other group yeah no that's really well said because my first thought when i heard that owners wanted to use war to determine 
the pay of arbitration players is, you know, analytics hasn't necessarily been a friend of the older player. <laughs> and I, my first thought, Greg was, yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if that's, that's going to go over, if that's going to go over real well. Listen, uh, we really appreciate your time. We know it's valuable. You know, we appreciate your insight. Thanks so much, man. Be well. And, uh, well, we'll get you back on when this thing gets over. Thank you. All right. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Be well. That is Greg Boris, president of Power X Communications, former director of communications for the Major League yeah. Baseball Players Association, I, former professor. I didn't, I, I didn't at, like what uh, he Massachusetts Amherst. I, I didn't like what he said when he said we we're going to miss games. I, boy, I, I didn't like that because you, 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 that's the first time, I don't know about you, that I've heard anybody say that. That's always been a well, I mean, it's always been a great. It's always a possibility when you lock down. Once you lock down, you got to start up again. Um, I, I put a lot of uh, of of uh, of stock in what Greg says because he's been in the room when he's been in the room when the union said, "Okay, how are we gonna how are we gonna how are we gonna present this? How are we gonna present our argument?" And one of the things that happened uh, with the Players Association, the Players Association was a really savvy group, and Greg Greg was a part of this. It was the Players Association who figured out. In the, in the 90s that, and this was before social media, obviously, they figured out in the 90s that it made sense to pick a group of reporters, national reporters, guys like Murray Chass, guys like Ronald Blum of, of the Associated Press, and have briefings with them, have informal briefings every day during the lockout. And and it wasn't any, there wasn't any subterfuge. They weren't using it to say that Bud Selig's a bad man and all this stuff, but it was, hey, this is what happened today. This is our point of view. And for that reason, a lot of the media coverage, a lot of the breaking media coverage was typically pro-union. Beside the fact that most, you know, most writers are going to side with the players anyhow, because that, those are the guys they have day-to-day relationships with. And eventually the commissioner's office kind of figured out that that was the way to go as well. So they, they started briefing. And that, that's why I put a lot of stock into what Greg says, because, yeah, there's stuff that has gone on in the room that is known only to those who are in that room but Greg can kind of sit back and get and get the sense of things, and it, it's something to keep in mind that it it may seem peaceful because both sides have made a conscious decision to not air their laundry in public. Mm-hmm. It's there. There's there's nothing to be gained by it for both sides, and if that's the case, then we've been in you know we we've, we've kind of been lulled into this 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 calm. Uh, it, you know, which frankly works for both sides. Like the owners don't want fans calling up and saying, we're not buying tickets. The players don't want fans to stop buying jerseys. And, and it, it serves them both to kind of keep this idea out there that, hey, it's just business. We'll get back to it. Bottom line, though, is as long as the system operates in a way that prevents it from becoming personalized, I'm not worried how the game comes out yeah. on the other end. I and, and I will say this, you know, people around baseball on the record, and even, and even folks who talked off the record, they'll tell you that they think it's unlikely the games are going to be missed. Right. But again, who knows? We're, we're, we're in a lockout now. And as I said, what, all it takes, all it takes is somebody to say something and it can undo two days worth of progress. I see some positive in the fact that the players have moved towards a couple the owners in a couple of ways. I see some positive steps in that teams like the Marlins and the Rays are giving out big money to young players, admittedly very good young players, but 
Greg kind of hit on the, the, the crux of this from the player's point of view. How do you make it fair for every class of player? That's ultimately what you want to do. Yeah. How do you make it fair for the 30-year-old guy, the 28-year-old guy making $120 million? Most importantly, the younger guys coming in. Mm-hmm. How do you make it fair for how do you make it fair for the guy who the twenty fourth and shuttles back guy. and forth between AAA that's it. fifteen times a year? And that's become more of an issue because of the way teams use their book. We talked about it. every year, every team says, Well, we gotta have a bunch of guys at AAA that we can bring back and forth, back and uh-huh. forth, back and forth. That's something that has happened almost under the feet of the players' association. Like nobody Nobody in the last CBA, I don't think, foresaw an opener. <laughs> I just don't. No. But that is now, has to be a factor in thought going forward. We hit it from all sides today. And it, and I, I don't know if, if Greg put a, a period on the end of that, but it just sounds like a, a guy being in the room like Greg has. February 15th, there's no chance of that happening. It's March March first and on. Yeah, I, I and hopefully listen, it's closer to March. Well, 1st. I, I think we'll get we'll 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 have an idea on February first. If nothing's happened and nothing looks like it's going to happen, then I think you start. Then I think you start worrying. Greg's right. It's not you know the light bulb isn't going to go on in in a week, but I think February first we'll have an idea. Either and and it, 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 I think we'll get an idea that either stuff's being done or it's completely fallen apart. Like, I hope we don't hear anything for another month about it. Nothing. Everybody go home, chill out, get rid of the adrenaline, recalibrate, come back and get at it in January. That, to me, would be optimal. I don't want to hear leaks. I don't want any more leaks. I don't want to hear somebody go on social media and say something. I want quiet, get back at it in January when it matters. That's it for us. We'll be back tomorrow. Again, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590, The Fan.